So let's go to God in prayer. God, we know you're in charge anyway, so we might as well give it up. And we thank you that we're not in charge. We pray, God, that on this day that we would that we would come to you with an, uh, a sense of gratitude. How could we not? We have shelter. We have good friends. We have a time of freedom to gather and talk about you. How could we not be grateful? But God, there are things that weigh us down that distract us from our gratitude. And so I pray, God, for this group of people, that they could let go of that distraction for a moment so that their hearts could make way for gratitude, so that they could be in this present moment just to receive your word. We pray for all of those, O oh God, who are not as fortunate, for the, those who have no shelter against the rain, for those whose lives have been disrupted and destroyed by the fury of winds and guns and earthquakes and all manner of things. God, we know that you are present with them in a way we can't fathom and immensely present with them in the hearts of those who turn towards them to help. Let us be your helpers too, oh God. We lift these things up to you and we pray for your guidance and your wisdom and, your, and a sense of your presence with us today. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but we've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. A whole bunch of stuff. And uh, the way I'm going to do it, if you don't mind, I'm going to do just a little um, a look back at Genesis. Then we're going to, then we'll read uh, chapter 37. And then we'll have discussion about chapter 37, and then we'll read chapter 38 and have discussion about that. Does that work for you all? Because it's a whole lot of stuff. And uh, 37 and 38 could not be more different. And you'll find out why they're so different in a little while. And so um, uh, anyway, that's the way we're going to run the morning. So the reason I wanted to um, to kind of do a little uh, uh, re rethinking about Genesis is because you're in uh, chapter 36. There's about 50 chapters. So you're way over halfway point. And it's really important, I think, to always keep in mind what it is Genesis is all about in order to understand what you're reading today. So uh, we come to a brand new narrative today. This is the shift of stories. You've been laboring and, and worrying and working with Jacob and all, all his uh, troubles and with all of that from the very beginning, from creation on through Jacob. And now we come to a brand new narrative that will take us all the way to the end of Genesis. And this is the exciting part. Will take us to the end of Genesis where we will end up in Egypt and what is the next book? Oh, oh, I hope you do Exodus next. It's you, it will blow your mind like that. So I hope you do that. So um, it's a good idea for us to pause for just a few minutes and to review where we've been. So way back at the beginning of the story of, of beginnings, do you remember the first action that launches Genesis? What is it? 
Yeah, well, it's creation. And who's the object? Who's the subject? Who's the verb in creation? God. That's right. It says this. From, this is from the message version. It says this. First this. That's what it says. First this. God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke light, and light appeared. So the very beginning, we have God. First God. God is the subject of life. God is the foundation for living. And if we don't have a sense of the firstness, and the centralness of God in our lives, we will never get it right. We will never get life in full relationship. We will never have a balance. We will never have harmony and, and to, in order to get our lives right. And it's not God in the margins. It's not God as an option. It's not God on the weekends. It's God at the center and the circumference. It's God first and last. It's God, God, God. And Genesis kind of gets us off on the right foot with this. It says, first this, God. Genesis pulls us into this sense of reality that is God-shaped and God-filled. So it gives us a vocabulary. Genesis gives us words for speaking accurately and comprehensively about our lives, uh, where we come from and, and where we're going, what we think and what we do, and the people we live with, and how to get along with them, and, the tr and, and how certainly to sabotage any relationships we have, the troubles we find ourselves in, and the blessings that just keep arriving. Genesis lays all that groundwork for us and gives us that vocabulary. And Genesis uses words that creates a foundation that is solid and true. Everything we think and do, you see, everything we think and do, along with all of these people in this story, our foundation building, it's material that is building something on that foundation. And it's, it's an operation in which we are engaged our whole lives long. There is immense significance in everything that we do every day because we are continuously, just like all these people in the scriptures, we are continuously building and contributing and adding on to what's being built on that foundation. But we don't build the foundation, do we? The foundation is given. The foundation is firmly in place. In fact, Jesus concludes his most famous teaching by telling us that there are two ways to go about our lives. We can build on sand or we can build on rock. And no matter how wonderfully we build, no matter what kind of life we have, if we build it on sand, what's going to happen? It's going to fall to pieces like a house of cards. And we build on what is already there, what is already there on the rock. Now, Genesis is a verbal witness to that foundation. Genesis points towards God's creative acts. It points towards God's intervening and gracious judgments and the way God works with humanity to, and shapes us, forms us forward. It, it, it's about God's call to a life of faith, and it's about God making a covenant, making promises, a promise that starts from the very beginning and never ends, and it's still ongoing today. But Genesis doesn't do this by presenting doctrine. 
It doesn't do it by presenting a list of rules and regulations. That comes later. But Genesis does it in a very unique way. How does Genesis do that? Stories. Stories. That's exactly right. Genesis introduces us to people, to people that look an awful lot like us. We are given a succession of stories with named people who loved and quarreled and believed and doubted and failed and succeeded. They had children, they got married, they, they, were, they were betrayed, they were betrayers, they experienced sin and grace. This is how Genesis, Genesis approaches us. And if we pay attention, we can find something of ourselves in these stories. If you, you might find yourself resonating with one story more than another. Look closely at that. Why is that? Do you find yourself in that story somehow, some way? There are variations of these stories, but they seem to be cyclical and go round and round, and we hear a similar story on and on. There's a story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and his sons and Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, and Joseph and his brothers. So the stories show us clearly, I believe, these stories show us clearly that we are never outsiders or spectators to anything on heaven and earth. You all, what this shows me is that we are the fabric of these stories. We are the fabric of what will help other people understand God and understand it's our stories. Maybe it's your story living out in your family, in this community as a whole. It's our story here at Village Church. Maybe it's your story in your family, but we are continuing that story. God doesn't work impersonally from outer space because we know that's not where God is. God works with us where we are. God finds us. We may not know where God is, but God knows exactly where we are. So the conflict, so, so anyway, it's important to go back and remember that everything that we read in scripture, no matter how intriguing the stories are about human beings and telling us about ourselves, the main character always in all stories is guess who? God. God is the number one primary focus of every single story. And if you read these stories with that lens on, you're going to see that it makes a, it makes a huge impact on how you see that story. Okay, so then the conflict between Cain and Abel at the very beginning of Genesis introduces us to a theme that runs throughout Genesis. And I might say, continues to run throughout scriptures, even through the New Testament. And that's the rivalry between brothers. But remember an important thing, and that is that in the Hebrew tradition, these stories about individuals are very rarely about individuals. They are about tribes, communities, a group of people. That would be like if there was a story about Jan Cook, but it was the story of us, our community, then we would recognize that I maybe had these struggles, but my community was struggling. So remember that we're talking about a great amount of people, more than just the two people that, we, that are there, but they are involved in a conflict that we have to pay attention to. 
Such a rivalry occurs with Cain and Abel, Noah's sons, Abraham and Lot, who were uncle and nephew, but the scriptures say they were brothers, Isaac and Ishmael. But the primary examples are the rivalries that we've just been reading about between Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers. That takes up the longest and largest amount of narrative that goes on in Genesis. So in the majority of these cases, conflict is introduced when a younger son is favored over an older son who is the legitimate heir, right? Will you agree with that? Okay, now think about this. This is kind of exciting. <laughs> think about this. All right, fast forward, you know, a thousand years. You have this rabbi, Jesus, and you have all these Jewish people, and they know these stories, and they know that that primary conflict is running through, and they, and they know all about this rivalry and all of this, and they've heard it and heard it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus introduces a story about a younger son who demands his inheritance and goes off and squanders it and comes back and the father does nothing about it and the older son stamps his foot and says, I just won't stand for this. Now, think about that. Think about the impact on those people hearing this story, carrying on. They knew these stories. The men knew these stories and told their wives, hopefully. But they knew these stories. They knew that this is a running theme of the God of their ancestors, this rivalry between brothers. And Jesus uses that parable? Wow, that's incredible. And this theme is very common because the stories of Israel's ancestors are family stories. And, and the Israel was a kinship society. So, uh, because the family is the basic unit of society. You know, they were Bedouins. They traveled with their tribes around and be, long before they settled down. And so the, their children had children, had children, had children, and they all traveled together. This was safety in numbers. So they traveled around, and so the family was extremely important, and it was the basic unit of, of society. So if you're talking about higher organizations like clans and tribes and kingdoms, it, they're all essentially modeled on the family structures. So in a society, the stability of the family is essential for the stability of the society as a whole. And what's really of greatest concern is the passing of authority from one generation to another. They were very concerned with who's going to be in charge and so this is the setting through which we see these stories that we're going to be encountering. So now we come to chapter 37. You, now you know everything you need to know about Genesis, right? You know that it's a story about God, God first. And, it's, and the theme that runs through it is this rivalry. And also we're being introduced to a brand new theme that will go on for the rest of the, our time together. So we're going to be reading from chapter 37 now. Jake, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. So if your version is different, no worries. Just, just know that it's basically saying the same thing, whatever version you're reading, unless you're reading a version you've written yourself. So 
Okay, Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bila and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children. <laughs> because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. Now at this point, you your version may say a multicolored coat or something like that. But what they found is that in the original language and in the customs of the time, it may not have been a multicolored coat, but simply a coat with long sleeves, which indicated nobility and indicated authority. But when his brothers saw that their father, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hey, guys, listen to this dream. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose, stood upright, and all of your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. He had another dream and told it to his brothers, not too bright, I think, <laughs> saying, look, I have had another dream. The sun, the moon, 11 stars were all bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what kind of dream is this that you've had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, who is Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to him, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Ah, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying a gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. 
Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we, if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we found, seeing now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Wow, what a plot. Can you believe what was happening? And so we have this, and it sets... It sets the main themes and issues which will dominate all of these stories, the entire Joseph narrative that goes all the way to the end. Joseph, beloved son of Jacob's old age, is introduced abruptly. All of a sudden, hey, 17-year-old kid, all of a sudden we're introduced to him. Joseph's name actually means add, A-D-D. So he is added to the lineup of sons by the mercy of God. Benjamin hasn't even come along yet. So now Joseph embodies the new history. The narrative reflects a sharp new beginning from where we've been. And, and what, one of the things I want to point out to you is that there are, are definite and intentional parallels in the lives of the father and the son in this particular story in the life of Jacob, who is now called Israel, and in the life of Joseph. And what are some of those? Well, for one thing, both of them are younger brothers. And this is, as I said before, this is going to be introduced throughout Scripture. You're even going to hear a little bit of this in the next chapter when we read it. It's going to blow your way. You're going to go, I, I have heard that before. I am familiar with that, the rivalry, and this turning of the of creating the instant conflict of the younger, it turns the order of things upside down. That's the intention of the story. It turns the order upside down and instantly creates conflict. So they're both younger. And at some level, both of them take away their older brother's heritage in a, in a different way. Uh, Jacob plots to take it away and uses deception and takes it away. Joseph, just by the mere love of his father for him and his dreams, takes that sense of birthright away from his brothers. And both of them are involved in stories of deception, right? Jacob deceives, Joseph is deceived against. Now, both of them experience relocation. So Jacob, how is Jacob relocated? When Jacob did his thing, what happened to him? 
he hightailed it out of there as fast as he could in the middle of the night with all his belongings and everything because his brother, he had duped his brother and his brother was giving chase. So he relocated away from home. And Joseph is relocated against his will. He's sold into slavery. And then here's the thing. Both of them evolve from a sense of arrogance and deceit. Because when Jacob, when Jacob arrives in a foreign land and becomes the man he, he becomes and travels back, we can't even recognize him from that young man who deceived his father in the village, can we? We have seen him wrestle with the angel and become this man who could lead Israel. And Joseph, believe me, you're not even going to recognize Joseph when you get to the, the next part of his story after the story of Tamar and Judah. Because this, this arrogant young man who saw himself as above his family it is going to become this, this incredibly wise and kind. So we see an evolution of both of these characters. And then here's an important part. Because this story was written much, much later, around like 500, 520 um, BC, uh, maybe a thousand years after all of this took place, the, the sources gathered the story and were looking back at it. They, the story is concluded, both stories are concluded with reunion. Both people have found themselves driven out or, or far away from home. And in both stories, they return home. And so the story of uh, reunion becomes a story of hope for the exiled Jews. So chapter 37 is divided into two parts. And verses 1 through 4 introduces the entire Joseph narrative. You can get what's going on just by reading those first four verses. And in those first four verses, it sets up the tensions between the, the family members, the tensions between the brother and between Joseph, and at some level between the father as well. He wasn't too happy with Joseph either. And it's in those verses, 1 through 4, that it triggers all the action. And then verses 5 through 36, the rest of the chapter, announces the main theme. And what is the main theme? It's the power of dream and its conflict with business as usual. You see, business as usual was these, these sons of Jacob would go along, the firstborn would inherit and divvy up things among the others, and then life would move on and go on, and they would continue. But these dreams, Jacob had this experience, and it, and it intercepted life going on as normal. And now Joseph has these dreams, and it intercepts life going on as normal because they couldn't stay there. We know that because we know how the story unfolds. They couldn't stay there. The whole world is counting on them not to stay there. So how are they going to get moved from there to the whole world? So it's the story uh, um, is embodied by the brothers. It's... Um, so the account is introduced in verses 1 through 2 by the priestly writer. Do you remember us talking about that? And I kind of, oops, sorry about this. I kind of knocked it off. Too much Italian stuff going on here. Um, do you remember? Anyway, I included just a sheet I attached for your interest. But the, the scriptures in the Old Testament are pulled together by four, sor four sources. And these sources are priestly and Yahwistic and Elo 
linguistic and um, deuteronomic, if you can say that. And anyway, um, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that. So we know that verses one through two is introduced by the priestly writer and that this particular story has three sources that they're drawing from for this story. So the priestly writer uses a formula that, he, that the priestly community uses in all the ways when they contribute. That's why we know it's them. They always inter, they either intercept a, the story and, and interject this, or it's at the beginning of a story, and it goes like this. This is the story of the family of, or these are the descendants of. That's the priestly writer. The priestly writer wants to make sure that the, that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that the lineage is intact, the lineage that goes down, and, we, and we'll understand why in a minute. But remember, they're looking back, so that lineage has to include David, but it has to include, do you see what I mean? It has to come and it has to intersect there. So when you see that, you can pretty much attribute it to the priestly writers. And, and the rest of the narrative itself is made up of the traditions from both the Yahwist and the Elohist. And the traditions are woven together here. And, and listen, when the editors put together all of these traditions, they didn't care that they were putting together several different versions of the same story. It didn't matter to them. They gave you all of the versions. So that's why in creation, you have two creation stories. And you're like, well, which, uh, which, which creation story is? What happens? Well, what happened to what happened to the rib over here? And oh, you know, over here. And so we'll, we'll, they're coming from different sources. And so in this, we have three sources that are contributing to this story. Their traditions are woven together. So we have the priestly um, uh, writing. Joseph. Uh, there's three explanations for the conflict between Joseph and his brothers. So the priestly's right, the conflict is because Joseph brings back, he's a tattletale, and he brings back negative comments about his brothers. So the priestly writer says that's why they're in conflict. The uh, Yahwist writer says it's Jacob's favoritism of Joseph. That's why the brothers hated him. And, it, and it's symbolized by Jacob giving him that special robe. And the Elohim says, it's Joseph's dreams of superiority that are the reason that the brothers hate Joseph. So we have these three reasons. Maybe they're all, they all could be very uh, sound reasons. But, we, but what we know at the end of it, underneath it, the brothers hate Joseph. So according to the Yahwistic tradition, Judah appeals for Joseph's life, suggesting to his brothers that they um, that they put him in this pit and leave him there. And then uh, they do end up selling him, and then they deceive their father. But uh, in the Eloist tradition, it's Reuben that, uh, that appeals for the, his brother's life. And then they just kind of cut over to, after that, they kind of cut over to after... Um, uh, Judah says, what am I going to do? They just cut over to, oh, we're going to dip his coat in blood and give it to dad. And they don't talk about this conflict anymore between the brothers at all. There's no conflict. So they, so they do end up selling him. So the theme of the entire narrative is the battle between the dream and the killers of the dream.
That's the theme for the whole rest of the time. Now, let's talk about dream for a minute. The dream would appear dead if it were not for verse 36, which hints at another possibility. What does it say in verse 36? We go through all of this. They've sold, they've, they've gotten rid of Joseph, their arch nemesis, and Jacob is grieving and whatever. And then all of a sudden, and we have this bereft father, and his heart is broken, and he's crying and whatever. And imagine this in your mind. The camera pans over from the bereft father, and in a distance we see camels with Joseph shackled behind him going off into Egypt. Egypt. So then we figure out when you start Exodus, you figure out where how they got to be there and why there were so many people there and why would Joseph was played a had played a part in there. But it, anyway, that's a whole nother story, and that's a very exciting story. So um the so the dream would appear dead, except the writers don't let us believe that. No, nope, the dream's not dead, it goes on. So the main character in all this drama is guess who? Who is the main character in all of this drama? It's God. God is the main character. It's not Joseph. It's not Judah. It's not Reuben. It's not anybody. God is the main character. What is God up to? The writer uses the form of dreams to make God's movement known. So don't get hung up on the dream in this particular instance being a mystical phenomenon. Because let's be honest, if, for example, if you, in, you have, a, fight, you have a, a dream, and in your dream you have a fight with somebody that you love, is it right to wake up and then want to sell them into slavery because you had this dream? No, we all recognize that a dream is a dream. That wasn't the problem the, the brothers had with them. It wasn't a mystical dream. It was a dream that Joseph had for power because the father loved him the most. So it was that dream and his uh, unfortunate uh, decision to share that dream with all his brothers that were so infuriating to him. So this was not, the, the dream is not about Joseph being in charge. The dream is about how to move the people of God. And this is God's dream. This is God's dream. God's dream of all of the world, the whole world being in relationship with God. That's God's dream. So whenever these things come about, we know that dreams are a conveyor of a message. And the message, uh, Joseph may have misinterpreted the message, I'm going to be in charge, when actually that, that is maybe not the message. The message might have meant you're going be, to be chosen to do some really hard stuff. But he, that's not how he interpreted it. So what is the main substance of the dream? The main substance of the dream are the two R's. Reign, R-E-I-G-N, and rule, R-U-L-E. It's who's going to be in charge of the, this founding nation, of these people who had not yet even come together yet. Whose dream is this? It's God's, God's dream to fulfill the promises that he made. So the politics of a dream, the remainder of the unit is divided into three clear scenes. 
each with different parts to play in the drama. Scene one, verses five through 11, ends in a hint. The dream is announced. Power relations and tensions are indicated, which will dominate the action. So now we know the, what's afoot. We know that there's going to be conflict. And then we have this crazy, mysterious interlude that happens in the Bible all the time. But it's verses 12 through 17. And this is not one of the scenes. But it's a curious interlude, which doesn't visibly have any action, except that he's wandering in a field lost. And this guy comes up to him and says, hey, can I help you find find whatever you're looking for? And he says, yeah, I'm looking for my brothers. And he points to him. Okay, thank you. So then we have scene two, which is verses 18 through 31 which ends in a deception. We have a hint, and now we have a deception. The brothers are dominant. This scene witnesses the violent action, and this violent action links the tension of scene one to the grief of scene three. Scene one is where it's laid out. Scene two is where it links in a deception, and scene three is where it plays out in grief. Scene three verses 32 through 35, end in a charade that takes on reality. They're pretending to be upset. They come with this coat, and they say, oh, could this possibly be the coat that you gave Joseph? We're not sure. And he takes it and identifies it, and they rip it, and, and it's all ripped up by some wild animal, and so we're left with this grieving father. We, and, and, and you have to be able to hear the deep grief. And, and across the ages of the, of the more modern Jews at the Holocaust, when they're torn apart, at, at the deep grief of every coming of death and damage to the dream, to God's dream of us all being in relationship. But at the last minute, as we talked about this before, before we can be left with that grief, we are taken and relocated from that place to Egypt, which is now the locus of action. This is now where the next action is going to take place. And the the dream goes far beyond God's promise to a group of Bedouins. This was, you see, God has the, God has a patience of God, you know? I mean, I mean, God knows we as human beings, we, it takes a long time for us to get on board. A long time. And it takes a shaping of us. We go from uncivilized and unmannered and, you know, eating like dogs and whatever to being in this lovely room with our casseroles. And, you know, we've come a long way, baby. You know, I mean, a long ways with that. And God, every step of the way, has been shaping us and, and giving us and supplying and all of this all of this stuff. So it goes far beyond that, and it's God's dream of a world that is in relationship with God, reconciled and holy. That's why we move from that place to Egypt. And that's, that's just chapter 37. So now we know, and if we were to take out chapter 38, we would just pick up right from that spot and continue the story. So what is this chapter 38 doing here? And it is a wild story, let me tell you. But I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things before we read the story. 
One, I'm going to ask for you to think about your Puritan roots. And I mean, when you read this story, the hair that raises on the back of your neck that says, this is, this is immoral, this is wrong. How could she, oh my gosh, what kind of person would do this, blah, blah, blah. Just lay those little hairs down, you know, let them lay down. And, and before you enter this story with, with our modern day, uh, 21st century a feminist understanding of the way the world operates, of good, bad, evil, and wicked, lay those down too. Because you have to read this story. You can only read this story. If you read it within the marriage customs and economic realities of Israelite society, that's the only way you can read this story and make any sense of it whatsoever. Because it's going to it's going to surprise you what the what the main part of this story is. So if anybody anybody ever tries to use this story, because you are being a bad person, you tell them you cannot use this story for that. You must find another story outside of the Bible. So let's read this crazy story, and then we'll talk about it just for a few minutes. Okay, this is uh, chapter thirty-eight. So it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He married her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Again she conceived and bore a son whom she named Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she named him Shelah. She was in Chazib when she bore him. Judah, so how many sons does she have now? Okay, three. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, now in this time, if he impregnated his sister-in-law, any children that he did would belong to his dead brother. That's, what, that's where this comes from. And his aunt would be, uh, would be allowed to have the inheritance from his older or his dead brother. So this is a matter of economics. He spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. Now this was unheard of too. She belonged to Judah's house, and he has sent her back to her father. So there's already an injustice going on there. It was her father's decision whether to receive her back or not. For he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. In course of time, now, Tamar could only count on the children that she had and the children that of, of her husband that she had to take care of her in the future. That's the only ones that she had um, that were available to her. In course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. 
When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hurrah the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, the younger son, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a kid, not a child, but a goat from the flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet, meaning your ring, and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she got up and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the kid, the goat, by his friend, the Adulamite, to recover the pledge from the woman, he could not find her. He asked the townspeople, hey, where's the temple prostitute who is at a name by the wayside? But they said, no prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Moreover, the townspeople said, no prostitute has been here. Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own. Otherwise, we'll be laughed at. You see, I sent this kid and you could not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the whore. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of whoredom. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. It was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, whose these are, the sigmet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah, this is the most important sentence in this particular chapter. Think about this. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more in the right than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not lie with her again. That, this is what this whole chapter is about. When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. Oh, this is something. Wait till you hear this story. While she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and bound on his hand a crimson thread, saying, this one came out first. But then he drew back his hand, and out came his brother. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the crimson thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. And there we go with that younger son <laughs> taking over again. Is that the most incredible thing ever? All right. So let's go back and just look at this story very briefly. So the story of Tamar interrupts, totally interrupts the story of Joseph, right? I mean, all of a sudden we just have this crazy story that interrupts it. And, and, and the peculiar chapter stands quite alone and it doesn't have any connection to the context, but it does have a connection to the overall story and to the dream, God's dream. 
So it doesn't appear, and here's the thing, this story doesn't appear to have, be from any of the sources that we've been talking about. It's just a story that they have, the editors found, and it made sense that this is the place that it would be a connector tissue for them. And it is the story of a matriarch who, like those before her from chapter 27, works within the patriarchal system of her society to change the direction of Israelite history. That's the story. It's the morality of her sexual relationship with her father-in-law. You can, like I said, you can only judge this. If you look, if you're standing within the marriage customs and economic realities of Israelite society, that's the only way you can judge this. And the story has been preserved because it pertains to the family of Judah. Who descended from the family of Judah? David. David descended from the family of Judah. Who descends from the family of David? Jesus. Jesus descends from the family. So this is the so the story of uh, the story of the descendants of Jesus are filled with prostitutes and we have Rahab we have all these people and as if to say why are we so judgmental about these people they've got a story the story is not one of, of immorality at all against Tamar but it's an indictment of injustice on the part of Judah and here's why the, stu the structure of the story is in three parts. Verses 1 through 11 create the scene by showing the need of Tamar, which is she needs to have a child, somebody that's going to take care of her and she, that she'll belong in their household. And the refusal of Judah to have his son as was expected. It is the fear in verse 11 of Judah, which later creates the problem for Judah. Then verses 12 through 13 tell of Tamar's enticement of Judah. First a trick by Tamar, and then Judah's inability to find her. So first she tricks him, and then she goes away because she's got to catch him publicly in this situation. Otherwise, it's going to be for nothing. It's worth noting that Judah really has no concern about retaining uh, the retention of his pledge nor does he have any concern about his sexual relationship with her, with this person that, that along the side of the road. It, it's never an issue at any point it, of his behaviors. So we know it's not a, a story of immorality. Um, verse 24 through 26 report the confrontation in which Judah acknowledges his own involvement. So you have to take care that the interpretation of this uh, uh, experience, a confrontation between Judah and, and Tamar, the issue of dispute is not about Tamar's uh, trickery. The issue of dispute is about Judah's refusal of his son, about doing what his duty, he was duty-bound to do, rather than on the act of adultery, even though that he was ready to burn her when he thought it was somebody else, you know. Clearly, Judah judges Tamar's adulterous actions by a norm very different than he judges his own. So verses 27 through 30 
appear to add a genealogical note unrelated to the main movement of the narrative. So what are the interpretive payoffs? Why do we have this story? We have this story, uh, for one thing, to establish some kind of genealogy to keep that movement going. But listen, what about it in verse 26, the concession of Judah, to add that, constitutes the main turn in the narrative. It's where, it's where the story takes a major shift. You see, Tamar's actions are minimized in comparison to Judah's. Why? Well, the status of Judah in the community. He was a rich man. He had a signet ring. He had a cord. He had a staff. We know that he, he, he was rich. He came from a, a family that was wealthy. So his standing in, in the community binds him to a responsibility to that community. Because in the Jewish tradition, we know that they are bound to take care of the widows and the orphans and all of those who can't take care of themselves. And so who does that mean? That means the richest person in town is going to care for those who are on the margins. And, and by his action, Judah has put into peril his standing in that community as being someone who's going to take care of that community. He's put that into peril. He had security and status, and he is expected to care in more responsible ways. So the result that we have from this is a brand new, fresh definition of righteousness. An unexpected assessment of guilt and innocence and an unbelievable turnabout for a woman in those times. Tamar is not punished. She could have been taken out and stoned for her actions. She's not punished. That's not part of even part of the story. But Judah has to make that concession. So the offense of Judah is the sin of looking after private interests at the expense of the community. And that is a lesson for us today. What do we see in the world going on today where people looking after their own private interests at the expense of the world around them? We could name a thousand different ways, couldn't we, that that happens in the world today. What we have to look, we always, it's easy to do that. What we have to do, all of us always, is look close at us. Do we do that? How do we look after our own best interests at the expense of the community around us? And if we do, what is God saying to us today? Anyway, isn't that great chapters? <laughs> Weren't they just great? You guys, you're getting so close to Egypt, I can just smell the Nile. So, so exciting. Anyway, that's the, um, that's the lesson for today. And I think I did it in just about the right time. Yay! And uh, I'd like to pray for you as you go off into your groups. And thank you for your time. God, I thank you for this morning, for the, the way you have offered yourself to us, for the way you nudge us, for the illumination of the Holy Spirit that opens our minds to listen and positions us to hear. And I pray that each conversation will be fruitful, that as they gather in these smaller groups, that they'll care for one another and that they will have some enlightenment and be able to share wisdom in ways 
that really change and transform their lives. And I pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.